Welcome to episode 62 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're a bunch of robot fanatics, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie and Chris, it's been a really long time. How are you guys doing? Oh, doing great. It's good to hear your voices again. How about you, Chris? You make it through the new year? Uh, yeah, made it through the new year. Uh, looking forward to this next year and uh, just hanging on like everyone else. Yeah, well, I thought I'd, um, just for our listeners' sake, you know, we, we've been off the air for probably, what, a month and a half. Um, everything was fine. We just saw, we decided we we're going to start taking a holiday break between Thanksgiving and New Year every year because um, it's kind of a hard time to schedule everybody for recording, especially now that we have three co-hosts. Um, just turns out it's a really busy time for us. So we probably should have mentioned that <laughs> on the last episode. <laughs> we actually decided after that was out. Um, but anyway, so everything's been fine. Um, we're back to our regular recording schedule. This is our first episode of 2021. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really looking forward to uh, the episode tonight. Yeah, likewise. Well, I'm going to start with Chris, because every time we talk, you've bought new machines. Did you buy new machines over the <laughs> Uh, no, no new machines. We still have the, the three trifecta, you know, um, but we are looking at the numbers that we've had and everything progressing. We're looking at a new machine quarter three of this year. Uh, lathe or mill? Uh, another mill. And we're thinking five axis. No, because our, our UMC kind of covers our need for that. We actually need another three, possibly four axis spindle. And we're actually thinking of uh, getting a different brand this time, leaving the Haas family. Can you say what you're looking at? We're looking at a Datron. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. Neo or bigger? Bigger. Uh, Like all the way to MX or something in between? Yeah, like the M10 Pro. Oh, M10 Pro? Okay. Just Yeah, just bigger. We're looking for something more precision, faster, and also uh, the vacuum picturing. Are you looking at the uh, M10 Pro, the one with the... I can't remember if that's standard with linear scales. I think it's optional, right? I, I think it's standard with linear scales. Okay, maybe the M8. Where that, it's that, that's the one, yeah. I know it's it's kind of confusing. I, I always forget, even though I've been looking at it, like which one is what. Um, but it's it's far enough in the future where we have an idea. We're just... Uh, the, the type of machine we get is going to be dependent on how well we do this year. So we have like three tiers. If we do extremely well, we're going to go for the highest end. If we do okay, we'll go lower. And then at the worst case, we'll get a new. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely. That's basically how we're, we're planning it out. Is this uh, like plate work or something else that's well suited to that kind of, I'm assuming vacuum work holding as well. Yeah. It's there's we plate work, um, tighter tolerance and also smaller footprint. Um, and also the MyQL thing was kind of, and also just changing machine manufacturer just for capability, you know, purposes. Like we don't want to buy like 15 houses and stuff. We want some variety for different things that are capable for doing different things. So I think everything that I've seen Eddie do has been a pretty good, like, okay, yeah, that's kind of what we want as well. So, so thank you for doing all the R and D for us. <laughs> yeah. I definitely say if you're going to look at the M10 pro, you should, Definitely also look at the MX, which is, I don't know if Datron like, would officially say that the MX is going to be a replacement for the M10, but um, that's kind of the way I look at it. 
like it's the next gen M10. I think the work envelope on them is almost the same, if not the same. Um, but MX is faster. It's like it's almost like they took the Neo and scaled everything up. So it's like super rigid machine, even though it's you know a M10 size work envelope. Um, it's faster than the Neo. I don't know if the M10 is faster as far as uh, rapids. I think like the MX is. I want to say it's either. I think it's 40 meters per minute uh, rapids mm, okay. compared to like 30 for the Neo. Um, could be 60. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure 40. But, but uh, I saw that machine at Emo and man, it's nice. And it has the ATC, it has the tool changer, uh, external tool changer, which you can get, I think you can get that on the MX. I mean, on the M10, you can definitely get it on the M8 um, tool assist. But uh, That's yeah. That's the, uh, the tool like, that you just, Put a tray of tools in and it uh picks through them yeah like a, a standard um large statron machine not the neo well neo's similar but they normally have a tool magazine on the in on kind of the back side of the large uh like, the, like a wine rack yeah exactly um so it's basically in the machine the there's a cover over them but there's they're kind of exposed to the chip stream um and it also there's a limit you know because it's just like a vertical, it's just like a, a row of magazine, a row of uh, tool pockets across the Y axis or X axis. So it can only hold X number of tools, even on the big machines. So they tool assist is basically just take that out of the machine, put like it's on a, a kind of a sidecar outside of the main machining envelope. And it's got a little robot arm that goes and picks up tools from a like internal storage inside the cabinet. And I, I want to say, I don't know, actually, I'm not going to even guess um, what the capacity is. It's much larger than the, the internal system. So I want to say it's, it's like... up to 110. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, it depends on, on the MX, which has the larger HSK holder. Um, I can't remember what size they are, but there's less. I think it holds less on the MX because the tool holder is larger. But like on an M8, yeah, it's 100 and, 100 and something plus. So... That's that's another segue into a a different discussion. But if this is for production work, and depending on how much you trust the shop guys, I would probably advise you to go for uh, not a Neo for production work. Yeah, the HSK versus direct clamping spindle, I think, you know, for large volume work is probably more reliable. Um, or at least lower maintenance, right? Because you gotta you gotta stay on top of keeping um, everything clean if you're using direct clamping. Um, HSK is like a little simpler, <laughs> right? Yeah, like you don't have to. I believe the cleaning interval is every week for the direct clamping spindle. That's what I do. Yeah, I don't know if that's their official recommendation, but I clean it every week because um, it's not just not a lot of mar. I've never had any problems, and probably because I keep it clean. But I know people. I get, well, you know, even in any direct clamping system, right? You can, it's, if it gets dirty or oily, you can have tool pull out, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Chris, think of it like the uh, the V250. Yeah, exactly. Like it's you a, just, you stick a tool in and it closes up on the tool itself. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You don't have the pins like you do on HSK where it's like a positive lock, but um, yeah. The flip side is you'll be paying a lot of money for tool holders. <laughs> <laughs> Those are not cheap. The, yeah. the higher RPM HSK, you know, balanced to 40K, 
not cheap. Yeah, it's just uh, it's kind of like we want it for the plate work. We want it for uh, faster prototyping process, um, and just you know accuracy, repeatability, that kind of thing. But um, just a mixture. It's just it's just adding a different type of tool to the arsenal kind of thing. We think Datron would be a really good fit for the kind of stuff that we do and at the speed that we at which we do them and iterations come a lot really quickly and stuff so being able to keep up with that is going to be one of the things because we're that's our biggest um, bottleneck right now is like we we make something and then we test it and it, there's a change coming within like 15 minutes after we put it on the bike and we look at things and or we flow bench test or dyno test or something like that so being able to just have a little bit faster uh getting the prototype done quicker and then then we can move it on to the houses after that for production and stuff so and also just having like now that and then after getting this machine we it opened up ourselves to different types of work right so it's a little bit of everything like you know i i i can't imagine i know for the price we could probably get a dusan or a um you know a team or whatever like any other or any other big name machine and stuff but the hosses are doing good for us right now and they're holding pretty good tolerances. Like I I'm ecstatic that they hold the thou. I, I honestly thought it was going to be worse, but they've, they've been doing it. So I don't know this because California temperature right now has been pretty consistent or what, you know, whatever it is, but it's been doing, it's been doing good. So, um, it's not a complaint of ours basically. Um, and we haven't had some of the issues that other people are having, so I'm not sure if we dodged a bullet or we just don't, uh, have the same volume as other people so they're putting harder hours and stuff like that on it or not but so far so good so for the price uh, it's definitely paying its way through um so i'm getting super rusty on five axis work i haven't i haven't really done any and probably since but well, I, I won't even count that one little part i made on the v250 recently but it's like uh <laughs> i do four axis work on the neo so it's but it's not anywhere near the same right it's it's like riding a bike and you're pretty much there i mean i I always tell people like the ones that are not familiar with five axis that going from three to five is not that much you're adding two planes and you know a little bit more clearance checking but uh, concepts and stuff don't change so do you see the new feature that uh just went into fusion for tool orientation where you can set it visually now that's pretty slick like, is that the one where the simulation is actually going to move the? Not that I know, of, but like normally with tool orientation, it's a checkbox in the um, the second. What's the second tab on the operations uh, geometry tab? Right, you click tool orientation, and then you click a plane or a feature on the a face on the object or on the model, right, to select your tool orientation. But sometimes you know you get like there's nothing, no good geometry to click on to get the orientation you want. So you have to go do like a construction sketch or something to give you a plane at the oh, right yeah. angle. Yeah. So now basically they give you a handle like you get if you ever use move or a line. Yeah. So now there's like a visual handle on the screen when you're doing tool orientation where you can just turn basically set the angle um, visually. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So you don't have to go do the, you know, create extra geometry in a sketch or something just to drive tool orientation. You can just arbitrarily oriented any way you want uh, with the mouse i really wish they would just allow us to make those chains those uh containment changes or whatever inside the manufacturing tab 
like not having to leave the tab to go, you know, draw a line to click on stuff. They have some of that now, like with, um, if you, well, it's in the, if you pay for the uh, manufacturing extension, they have toolpath trimming, which works that way. It basically, I think you can stay in the manufacturing module and you're basically drawing a boundary sketch um, when you're using that tool to trim the toolpath. Yeah, if they would, you know, basically expand that to just a general feature for uh, tool boundary, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, but isn't the trimming just? Oh yeah, I mean, you still you're just getting rid of like a section, right, or something like that. Yeah, I was talking about yeah. like the the, the way, way you do it, right? Yeah, they've okay. basically had to bring sketching over into yeah manufacturing, manufacturing. in order to support right. that. So. Well, sounds like they're halfway there. So yeah. it's kind of an ephemeral <laughs> sketch, although I think it's um it shows up in the history timeline. So yeah, it's parametric. And it doesn't have to be parametric. Like I actually would prefer it not be. Like if I just I if I select an edge and I make a copy of that edge as a line, that's all I want. I don't need it to be you know held to anything. It's just there. And if I want to move that a quarter inch in Z, I can or I can shift it. But like I want that type of free control. That'd be awesome because that would save a lot of time and also um, not having to like go and do everything manually in the sketch and stuff. It's a little tedious. Yeah. Now the thing you were talking about where like you're doing multi-axis simulation and you actually want the part to orient instead of the tool, right? Cause right now, like when you simulate the tool moves all over the place, like your spindle was just free, like free floating. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather, like everything move with the same kinematics as the machine, right? If it's I'm sure it's coming because they bought Camplete. It's only a matter of time. Like I'm sure they didn't buy Camplete to not have that. There's a good podcaster, uh, an Autodesk person. It was a uh, Within Tolerance podcast, but I'm trying to remember the guest name, so I'm going to look it up. Um, he talks a lot about what's coming in Fusion. He's a Dell Cam guy, um, former Dell Cam guy, right? He came over to Autodesk with the acquisition. He talks a lot about kind of what's coming up and uh, what's moving over from Dell cam that um, next. Right. And part of that is the, and he also talks about the Camplete acquisition and what their plans are um, for integrating that with fusion. So really good podcast. Uh, I'll definitely put it in the show notes, but you guys keep talking and I'll, I'll make sure I get his name. All right. So while he's looking for info, Chris, I want to pick your brain on UMC stuff. Because there is a remote possibility that I might be doing more cam for various parts uh, coming down the road at Carbide. Finally. So, um, I might be playing around on the UMC 750, and I am terrified. So I want to... I know you've talked about it briefly before, but what was your experience going from Pocket NC to UMC? What's similar? What's changed? Um, Like... Do you even do your setups the same way? Do you pick like an origin point? Um, what about the workflow is different between those two machines and what's similar? All I can say is your life is about to get a thousand times better <laughs> and every single facet of your machining career because you now have access to a probe. You now have a bigger table, uh, a powerful spindle. You now have all these more like, you know, things that you can use at, to your advantage. So the the transition from pocket nc to umc as far as programming there was barely any difference like I, it just felt like the same thing i was doing it's just that now the things that are making are coming out in 10 minutes 
Uh, now I have a probe to pick offsets. Uh, now I can do in-process probing. I can set my origin to the center of rotation of the machine and, and basically build a cam template and drop all my parts in and move them around to fit that so I never really have to set a work offset ever again, which I haven't in the past year. I go off of X, Y, zero, and the center of rotation for B is my Z, zero. And that point is like how we do the pocket NC where it's like a point, whatever. That's literally the same concept. You, you're picking this, this arbitrary, or there's not arbitrary point, but you're picking this point on the machine that's the center. Now, most people, yeah, like most people will, will pick the center rotation for the machine, but I've also done the, uh, the probing of like the rock lock master palette where, because we have that fifth axis set up, right? So we have a rock lock base. Uh, I, we put the palette inside. We probe the inside bore of the palette and the top of the rock lock base. And that point is the origin. And I've, I've made parts like that and they come out fine. Like they're not out of accurate tolerance or anything like that. So I think if you really, really want to chase something really tight, center of rotation for all axes is where you want to be. But if it's, like not that bad, like one to five thou, whatever. I think just picking off wherever you want and letting dynamic work offsets do its thing should be more than enough to handle that. But I think your learning curve is, is not even that high. You just need to learn how to use the probe, which is super easy. In just getting familiar with your clearances now because you have to worry about uh, tool holder, spindle housing, getting close. And the member, one of the things that they said about the 750 is you have a bigger table, so your housing will get awfully close to that table quicker than the UMC 500. So that's one thing that, it, that but that's like, you know, anything like the first time you put something on there, you're not going to just hit go 100% and walk away, right? You're going to like single block, walk through it line by line and watch it do its thing. So like, you'll know, you'll see if it's about to happen. Um, so that that shouldn't be a problem and stuff. Um, Do you guys have a good five-axis simulation software there, like a Barracut or Complete? We do not. I don't know about you, Chris, but uh, I think we just use Fusion for it. Okay, so check this out. We have Complete at work. I never use it. It just wastes it just wastes a lot of time for me to like sit through and watch it do the thing. Like honestly, with a little bit of experience, you you start to get like a gut feeling of like when things are going to get too close and that's the only time uh, that I will either put it through the complete or I'll just go out there and walk it slowly. Oh, and, so that reminds me of, you shared a trick that I thought was pretty cool. Um, I think you posted on Instagram a while back, but you actually defined, I think your tool holder is like the whole spindle housing, right? So that the fusion, so you get full collision detection on the housing and everything in fusion. That's pretty clever. So. Yeah, because that, that's the workaround. That's like a free complete for right now, basically. Like, if you just measure your spindle housing and everything and you just create that thing, you'll see it knock into your table, like, if it if it tilts over. And it works fine. So you don't need, like, complete for this stuff. Like, yeah, so I did the – I took that idea, stole it, and set up my um, – I don't have to get the whole spindle, but, like, the spindle nose on the Neo gets pretty close to the, the fourth axis housing. Um, depending on how how little stick out you have on the stock, so basically I was worried about that on a piece I did recently, and I basically did exactly what you did um, to find all the parts that could be collision sensitive and uh, actually caught a collision. So uh, before it happened at the machine, so that yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, no, it works great, and honestly, like knock on wood, I have not had an issue since, like or you know, ever since I've started. So just 
using that method or just being careful your first time running something. And like I said, the more you do it, you get a knack for like, yeah, this is going to clear versus this makes me nervous, right? And then so I know like I'll put an M01 or M00 code inside before I hit that part of the program. So it'll stop the machine. And then I put a note for myself that says like, pay attention. And then that's when I sit there and I single block and run through it. Um, or the things that I know it's going to be safe. Like if I'm just doing like a 3D positional like roughing, I'm not, I don't care. Like it's going to be fine. It's just when I'm doing weird stuff or going in diagonally and things get close and stuff. So, like I use Camplete at work sometimes, but I don't know. It's just like, I don't know. I just haven't felt like I needed it really bad yet. So I get away with the way I've been doing it. And my other coworker does the same thing. Like we both have Camplete. It's just, it just does, it feels like, not needed for the stuff we do until we get into really complex stuff. Then if we're really concerned because we have a lot of weird things going on, we have a bunch of, you know, fixtures that stick out or things that we need to dodge, then we'll put it in complete uh, and then we'll watch it and, and do all that stuff. So, but 90% of the time, like I just, just send it, like, just be careful and like watch it and figure it out, you know, and it's okay. Like you, you, like I said, you'll get a feel for it. Just like on your pocket and see, I'm pretty sure you could look at something and be like, this is probably going to get really close. And you know, just because you've done it so much, I, those projects that you did where you're pushing the limits of like everything where, you know, like this is the max travels and you're at the very edge of something like you, you start to build that intuition. I think trusting that is more time efficient. Um, than always sending every program through the camp lead to check, right? And you've got the machine table model like in your setup, right? So you yeah. can kind of just eyeball, oh, I know I'm coming in at like 90 degrees. It'll be rotated this way. Um, we've got, a, I think, a pretty tall fifth axis vice like fixture setup. So hopefully the clearance issues will be pretty minor. Where I shouldn't need to do anything past uh, rotating the table 90 degrees. Um, so I don't know. We'll we'll see. I'll I'll make a setup. I think it'll be pretty similar to the Pocket NC. Uh, I'm just there's there's a lot more power and potential for things to go wrong. So I I want to take it slow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and like anything, single block is your best friend, right? You you're going through one line of G code every time. You have you have the you slow it down so you can look at it and you can be like, what is this line doing? Okay, it's it's doing a rapid move. What is this line doing? Okay, it's starting to interpolate the whole. So you can watch it do this one thing and it, and it's just like the the best way to do it. You know, like if something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen very slowly or it's not gonna do to any damage at all. You might chip a tooth or something or break an MO at worst, but most of the stuff you're going to be able to catch, like it's about to do something bad. And this is really going to improve your manual G-code reading and altering and stuff because you're going to be doing it on the fly. The machine, you know, as that matrix code is like flying down that screen, you're going to be looking at it and be like, okay, it's doing what I am expecting it to do. So cool. I'm excited for you, man. It's just going to be fun. You're uh, going to I'm love it. I'm excited too. I loved it. a little terrified. <laughs> and just think about it this way. Think about every time you've upgraded or gone up to a different machine, you've, we've always had that feeling of being terrified. I, I still do to this day, even working on newer machines that I'm not familiar with, but just like everything we've done in the past, like, you know, you get through it, you get experience, you get confidence, um, and then it'll become normal for you. Just like pocket and see so there's an extra layer of fear when it's somebody else's machine that you might break right oh yeah yeah the boss's machine i'm setting up that decent lathe tool and i'm i'm terrified i th there's things that i'm only clearance by twenty five thousands. anything more than that that chamfer tool is going to hit the button head as it's spinning around and i had to make 
I made a fake tool out of aluminum and I turned it on a manual lathe with a 45 degree angle to simulate my chamfer tool. And then I put it inside my tool holder and spun it around the turret so that when it hit, I knew how much I had to back off from there to clear. And I gave myself 25,000 clearance because I need all the clearance I get to reach the the feature as it's going on the subspindle and stuff. So it was like, it was terrifying, I, I, you know, but, but just like that, you just slow it down, you know, figure it out, do something safe. I put a wooden dowel in there too in the beginning just to make sure um, that I wouldn't crash anything, but. Yeah, you had to deal with uh, subspindle handoffs too. Which are... Yeah. <laughs> Luckily we have like a template now and that template is basically like our Bible. Like I know this is going to work. I have two parameters I need to change for when the, the length of basically the distance of the subspindle will come in. So like it's easy for us to do transfers now because we just pull that template up, we move these two numbers around, we measure it on the machine, you input it, you're done. And then you splice it into the the program that you're running and in between wherever you want to do. So speaking of templates, I wanted to ask both of you guys. We we all sat through uh, Rob Lockwood's fusion, like that concept you came up with to kind of help you quickly set up a job in Fusion, um, especially like rapid prototyping work. Have y'all made any progress on like implementing that method? Are you guys using it on a regular basis? Well, um, I kind of use it for the pocket NC stuff because like we have the, the machine table um, in there, you know, your, your fixed origin point. So a lot of the times if I'm doing a, a model, I'll just import it um, into that uh, table model, uh, make a duplicate of it first, and then um, like I'll have uh, the adaptive roughing from the four cardinal directions um, going in. Uh, that's how I did my um, the SpaceX little Crew Dragon capsules, um, and I've done it for a couple other small STL files, but I haven't um, really implemented that for any other machine. Um, that being said, I have used some of the the actual CAM templates, um, Rob's cam templating is referring to the setup um, not the fusion feature of like actually saving a tool path um, as a template yeah he combines so both I've done it, right yeah he kind of yeah so i've done it both ways um there's both can be helpful um but since the the fixed ring will change a lot on my other machines um sometimes i'll save like a a thread milling um template so like a bore followed by the thread milling parameters um and for known threads that's that's kind of useful right because you can say like um this is my pitch diameter offset um thread pitch whatever stop like you change your heights in the heights tab to always default to like 15 thou above the floor so you don't uh crunch the uh, thread mill um so i've used both what about you chris uh i've used I definitely use the the save template. Um, well, also Fusion, yeah, Fusion's done a really good job with that new tool library system where I have a bunch of presets now. So I have a like 304 stainless uh, tool steel and aluminum kind of preset in there for end mills because we have standardized tooling at the shop now. So that's been like a godsend because I can just put something in there. Okay, 304, boom, I just pull this out. The same end mill is going to do this, you know, feeds and speeds all preset. That's amazing i love it saves so much time when i'm programming a bunch of stuff like not having to go in there and punch all these numbers because honestly like i'm sure most of us by now we have like 
a certain set of parameters that we kind of live by, right? Whether that's a 10% radio, a focal set, like you kind of know what you want already. Like, and that doesn't really change that much. So like, that's been cool. Rob's thing, I, I don't do it to the full of his extent of his badassery, <laughs> but I do like do it. I do the, uh, basically I have the stock box and like, and I throw parts inside of that and I'll move it around just to do quick roughing when we're prototyping. Uh, if I don't want to like worry about setting up this crazy fixture thing or building anything, uh, that's when I use it to throw stuff in and, and just kind of quickly rough something out. And while it's roughing, I'm I feel confident that I don't need to watch it after I've simulated it. So as it's roughing, then I'm programming the finishing. So then I can use that time while it's roughing to to finish up the rest of the part. Yeah, I ask because I I've been using like little pieces of it here and there last year and. In December, I kind of took the time to basically go rewatch his presentation and like fully implement it and start trying it here. Um, and I've been using on some commercial work that I do. That's kind of it's the same starting stock, you know. Like he, like one of the key things he says is it works best if you have like standardized starting stock, and um, you know you can kind of have that predefined in there. It's still everything's like fully parametric, so. If you need to change from like one standard size to another smaller piece, you know, it's real quick to change that. But, um, but yeah, I've been using it for, I've probably done like seven jobs now with it. Um, almost all my cams already defined and it's, you know, I use 3D where I can, so I don't have to click on any geometry and in, in the model. And so like starting to get to be really, really fast to turn around, um, to basically just pop in a model get most of the roughing, you know, just hit generate and it all, it's all kind of takes care of itself. I still have to go in there and do detailed, like finishing work. You just have to click on some geometry and do something custom for that job. But all the boilerplate cam is basically, I don't have to think about it anymore. It's, I'm a, I'm a true believer now. <laughs> like yeah, I, I no, really like it. Yeah, it is really good. And if you do both of those things, like his thing plus the creating the toolpath templates, like it saves a ton of time and it makes programming so much faster. Like if anyone is thinking about trying it out, try it out. It, it, you'll never go back. Yeah. And like the setups are, like I already have my setups. These are all like multi setup, uh, two sided jobs. And like one of the key things I figured out, um, kind of from watching this video and just thinking about it, it's like I used to always, when I was clicking on geometry on the setup, you know, the set you see plane and all that stuff, I was always clicking on geometry on the model. Um, it makes a lot more sense to click on something else that's either the fixture or something that's always in every model. I mean, always in every template file. Uh, so you have to keep reselecting geometry to get your setups right, right? So I can drop a model in, but all my, my Z, basically all the setups are already have the correct Z and X axis selected because I'm either clicking on the standard stock which doesn't change with the model. Like the thing is when you drop in a new model, your geometry is lost, right? If you were clicking on it from the previous, like previous use of the template, it, you know, whatever geometry wasn't in there when you define your template, you can't really yeah. reference, right? So you want something that's, yeah, that's um, fixed. Yeah, exactly. So like I went through kind of revamped all the setups um, that alone is a huge time saver and also reduces the chance of making a mistake, right? So, uh, just us talking about this just made me realize how much we missed out on having one this year, the Academy. 
yeah because like i learned so much from that besides having fun with everybody but like honestly just learning from people that use fusion to the fullest extent like even getting 10 percent retention on their thing is has helped me so much so i'm really looking forward to the next one because um yeah obviously always wanting to be better at the craft and stuff right so hoping things get better so we can yeah i think so i think hopefully this year you know by the end of the year we're hopefully back to getting back to normal for conferences and stuff like that so we'll be uh vaccined and ready to roll out <laughs> yeah so you know so this work i've been talking about like the stuff i've been using um these templates for is mostly uh if you can keep it up with my instagram you know i was doing a lot of mike six work last year um now i'm doing the same kind of parts but but we basically added a second uh, process type using a seedle instead of Mike six for the, for, you know, large plates, like 18 by 12 inch plate by one inch. And, um, you know, there's pluses and minus, like the great thing about a seedle, especially on the Neo is that you can machine it super fast and uh, you don't have to use coolant for the most part. Um, I am actually using it on the roughing just to kind of keep the heat down so I can go a little faster, but I really like how fast I can go and how long my tools last. <laughs> what I didn't like is dealing with the warping, right? Uh, especially with vacuum work holding, we were having serious issues with that plate warping by the time we've removed 90% of the material. You know, we're kind of basically hollowing it out, uh, hollowing out that large plate. So uh, me working with my subs kind of came up with a method that's working really well where we just, we bolt the whole thing down to a mix six, like a five sixteenths inch mix six plate or mic six sorry that's my new year's resolution to say <laughs> mic six <laughs> so uh yeah we basically screw the the one inch starting stock like in a bunch of different locations like 20 different uh fasteners into the bottom of it um m4 fasteners kind of hold it to the mic six and then the mic six is getting held by the vacuum which is very reliable it doesn't you know even if the oh. plastic tries to warp that mic six kind of holds it in place so it's become, you know, we had a lot of process control issues with it, or process reliability issues with that material, and now it's like rock solid. It's just, you know, it's like we're back to where we were with the Mic Six as far as process reliability on the work holding, um, but with all the benefits of acetyl, you know, the, the throughput, right? It's much higher. That's kind of what I've been spending my time on the last, like, since our last episode. Um, getting that all dialed in it is like rocking now, so. Super. I wish I could show more of it on Instagram. I can't really show most of it, but um, so you'll see like the r initial roughing where we're not actually showing much customer geometry, but the mm -hmm. good stuff is <laughs> the stuff I can't show, unfortunately, when the customer geometry starts to kind of emerge after roughing. Um, occasionally, like I'll get one that's generic enough that my, my customer will let me show it. But. That's cool. Yeah, I was really uh, jealous of the finishes you're getting on that mold. It, was, it looked amazing. Um, oh, on the acetyl? Well, no, the the aluminum molds you were doing, it was it looked really nice. So it was kind of a challenge to get to that same level with uh, Delrin and Acetyl at first, but um, we're getting there now. It's like you got to really watch your tools, like <laughs> make sure you're you're not running anything that ever ran in aluminum. That was like the first lesson, which I already knew. I just I hadn't been tracking that. Like I had some tools. Um, so like we switched over to a system now where I can track. Uh, in the magazine, whether it's a plastic dedicated tool or not. And I, and I have the same thing set up, like you were talking about with the tool library. So I have a, a seedle tool library in Fusion. Um, so when I pick, I can have aluminum tools and plastic tools in the magazine, the same tool, like a 
Datron three millimeter single flute. Um, and I can pick between the two of them, even though both are in the magazine and make sure that it's selecting the right one for plastic. So once we kind of got that worked out, uh, where I wasn't trying to machine with a dull tool, it's like the finishes are at least as good as I was getting in Mike 6. How are you specifying which tool it picks from? Are you altering the uh, the tool number? So this is a very Datron specific thing. So the way Datron uh, tool management works in Next is it doesn't go by tool number. Like the Fusion tool number actually uses, um, Datron would call the article the number. Yes, yeah, the part number for okay. the tool. Um, like, you know, the single flute, like a three miller single flute is 006880-3A, right, for the short one. If you want an 03A for, say, for roughing in aluminum and an 03A for anything in plastic, like I don't distinguish between roughing and finishing in plastic, we basically just append an R, like it'd be 03AR, uh, and the tool, like when you go to find it next, just basically copy the O3A tool and then into the user library and then add an R or whatever prefix you want or suffix you want um, to distinguish it from any other O3A that might be in the magazine and in the tool library. And then you can have two, you basically are three or four. Like for aluminum, I have an A and, and an AR for uh, finishing and roughing of the same tool, you know, using the same same tool type, right? But they're two separate tools, one of which is brand new, one of which has a lot of miles on it. And then a third one just for plastic, right? They're all three the same O3A tool from Datron. How are you keeping track of them? Because I'm assuming you're running out of tool magazine pockets. Like, do you use like, uh, do you put a little red Sharpie on one tool or how do you keep from getting confused on which tool is used for which purpose. It's exactly what I do. I write on the, I, I keep my tools in the original plastic case when they're not in the magazine and like the P's and the R's have a P and R on it. Um, eventually I'll probably move, like when the new tools come in and I know they're going to be just for plastic, I'll just, I have a little uh, label printer here hooked up to my Mac. So I'll just print labels, like reprint the tool number with the the, pre, the suffix and put that on there. Because um, the R does tend to, I mean, the Sharpie does tend to wear off when you have like IPA on your fingers, <laughs> you're changing tools. Yeah. So uh, I need something a little more durable. This might be uh, a good case to pick up a little cheap fiber laser so you can engrave your tools. Oh, actually do it on the tool? Yeah. That wouldn't be, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't we, be we have one from eBay and it works great. Yeah, actually, um, I might be picking up a, fiber, a small fiber laser for engraving, but like that was kind of my... We got a 50 watt one and it, it engraves and everything we put in there. So it's pretty cool. cool. Yeah, that was kind of, I was heading that way um, when we were doing the mic six. Like I wanted to engrave some product information on the backside. Now that we're doing acetyl, like we're doing more acetyl than mic six will be an occasional like special thing. Um, I can't really justify. I'm not going to laser engrave on <laughs> the acetyl or the fiber laser. But uh, you could laser engrave it on a plate and then mill a pocket for the plate to go in there. Yeah, you know, I was telling you, we, we put the Mike 6 base plate on that. That stays uh, part of the mold forever. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it has to, because <laughs> it's the only thing keeping that plastic from warping. And I mean, it's not just warping during machining, it's that they're molds. Right? Oh, oh. Yeah, so they go right, off. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay, they go okay. off and see several cycles, several hundred cycles of, uh, of you know, mold producing work, which has the heat heat up cool down cycle so we need them to stay flat throughout that whole production process and uh are they 
Are they using Delrin because of cost, or is it just because of other things? It's a combination of that and also uh, probably throughput's the main driver right now that kind of made everybody happy with that like switchover. Because um, some of the some of the Mike Six molds um, they could take a long time, you know, week, two weeks to machine. Um, I think the longest one we did was coming would have come in at around 100 hours of machining if we did it in Mike Six, and we did it mm-hmm. in somewhere I can't remember somewhere between 10 and 15 hours I think in acetyl that same mold. So uh, had a lot of lettering on it, <laughs> like very tiny lettering on all the cavities. So it took forever, even even with the acetyl. But, uh, but yeah, so like we can do, we can turn around more molds per week switching to that material. Everything else being the same. Mm, okay. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of weird because when you add in like the base plate and the extra machining and the extra material, cost isn't like cost for materials is probably actually higher for the acetyl um but it you know the payback is definitely in the reduced machining time and the cost related to that um, right, right. and even more important right if you can get three molds in the time you can get one then that's worth something to them so um yeah so it seems to be working i think uh you know there's we gotta see how durable these molds are um versus the mic six you know for some of the longer larger jobs that they have. So, so far it's been good. Uh, I think the, they've had one mold that's actually reduced pretty extensively. Um, many, many casting cycles. Uh, the rest were kind of short cycles. But uh, yeah. Is this injection molding or is it just like hand pouring? It's uh, silicone, yeah, hand pouring. Okay, okay. So, um, yeah, I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> no, no, just but, just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are in the end. These these are, uh, like for the most part, it's custom. Like we only make one mold or one design once on the on the master molds that we make here. So everyone's different, right? So the next mold we get is completely different geometry usually. Um, but they may, you know, for each master mold we make, they may make hundreds to thousands of uh, production molds from the master mold. So they have to hold up, right? That's the they have to hold up. Hold service finish has to hold up through that handling and curing cycles and all that stuff. So kind of related to all that <laughs> that work I've been doing is like uh, I wanted to ask you guys if you had any um, like big shop goals for twenty twenty one. I was gonna go first because <laughs> I only have a couple. Um, like one is I want to get uh, my mini split air conditioner installed before the heat of summer arrives and. It's almost already here. <laughs> we're in the we're in the high seventies as of like January here, so I got to hurry up and get that done. And then I'm also like looking at getting a uh, upgrading my compressor to a Kaiser screw Kaiser. Is that how you say it? Kaiser screw unit uh, sometime probably next quarter. Like the third thing I've been kind of doing some research on is uh, considering getting an ITAR EAR compliance certification for my shop. Because I'm getting more requests to do that kind of work that would fall under those uh, export control, I guess, regimes, whatever you call them. So I don't know if you guys have any experience, uh, or like Chris, you probably do. A bit. Is your shop an ITAR shop? Yeah, we're ITAR ISO, and I think we're currently waiting on the ATF to approve us to make weapons. Okay. Yeah, like my stuff, I'm, I'm not doing weapons work, but I'm, but that's, you know, if you guys ever looked at ITAR or EAR, which is kind of, the little bit watered down version of ITAR, it, it's actually pretty broad. 
in the technology. So even if, if you're doing any kind of like communication, RF, microwave, radar related stuff, or even some of the computation or computer stuff, right? It falls under ITAR. Uh, if you're machining, you know, certain components, right? That's, I don't do, I have no intention to like be doing missile parts or, <laughs> or firearms, but uh, even some of the like mundane stuff I do here actually falls under that. So um, yeah, as I'm looking at it, I have no idea yet if it's even feasible for a you know, one-man garage shop to be able to afford the compliance testing and all that kind of stuff. So um, definitely looking into it. Yeah, the next time I bump into our guy that does take care of it, I can I can poke his brain about it and see what he, what uh, well how much we pay and stuff like that and all that and let you know. Okay. I, I don't. I just know that we are. I don't really have any hand in like what that means, except for all the regulations and stuff that go into our systems and the way we store our files and share and all that stuff there, there's like a very specific yeah it looks like it security has to be good like you have to have good processes around good firewalls right around protecting anything yes. that's on computers um from external access and then physical access is the other part right visitor logs you know making sure no no foreign nationals are walking around your shop that kind of thing yeah and our even the usbs that we use at work are certified from our IT department. You can't just plug in a regular USB. Yeah, exactly. And I think like the third piece is there's some know your customer rules in there. Um, that I think apply more to the people sending me work than they do to me. Um, you know, if they're ultimately, cause I'm, I would never be exporting anything. These are like all domestic customers, but they may ultimately be exporting it. And then they have to kind of, there's a whole lot of paperwork around sending an ITAR thing out of the, out of the country. Um, so another question do you know if Fusion 360 is ITAR compliant? Because it's class. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, it's not. Um, yeah, so like that's one of the big hurdles to me is I'd have to switch over to Windows, which is the worst part. <laughs> I don't mind switching cam <laughs> systems, but there's it means switching away from Mac. So you know, if the business is there, I'll do it. Right? That's, that's kind of a silly reason not to to keep turning down business. It's like, oh, I have to use Windows. Sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm looking at uh, you know potentially other, either other things and Autodesk suite that can, you know, manufacturing suite that can meet that compliance, which there's, there's a couple. Um, Mastercam is probably one of them. Yeah. They're whole, they have a manufacturing suite, right? I think that's what they call our manufacturing stack. Um, I know it's power mill. Well, I mean, you've got the HSM works license. You could go solid works. Um, and your fusion license comes with HSM. I think I'd want to stay in the, Autodesk family, if I can. So either Inventor and or Paramel, right, and FutureCam and that kind of stuff. Um, I think is all, at least for the moment, is like you can work with local files on those. Now that's probably going to change as as Autodesk keeps kind of integrating things. I don't know if it will become fully cloud and also you know starts to become tricky with ITAR. But um, yeah, we'll see. That's just right now. It's kind of I wouldn't call that a goal. It's just something. It's a research topic. I'm not losing enough business right now um, because I'm not compliant for it to be an issue, but that could change, right? I'm definitely getting um, encouraged by at least a couple of my regular customers to to look into it so they can send me more work. Um, this is all, almost all of it's prototyping related. Yeah, this kind of, I wanted to throw that out there. So what about you guys? You got any big goals, uh, shop related goals for this year? 
Um, so shop goals, like we talked about earlier, thinking about a new machine quarter three of this year. Um, that's basically it for shop goals. Uh, for me, career goals, uh, I had actually an opportunity to work for quote unquote, the dream job this, this year, but I postponed it because I feel like I still have a lot to learn and I don't want to go into the dream job unprepared. Like I want to go in there being like, like a superstar, right? I don't want to go in there like, uh, like someone who's green, so to speak. And I don't feel like I've had enough time under my belt to be super proficient yet. So, um, I, I hold, I held off on it. Now, whether that was a good idea or not, we'll find out <laughs> in a year. But, um, my goal is by next, not this year, but the following year, I will be at the place that I was at the top of my goal when I decided to leave the nursing career. I will be at the look, the location where I, I worked so hard to get there and it'll be next year. So that's my, my, right now, my main focus is doing everything I can to get there and make sure that I succeed once I get there. So that's, that's kind of my big goal as far as that. And then as far as, you know, everything that's been going on, um, I told you guys earlier, but we, I had someone that I was working with that passed away from COVID. And once again, it seems like death has a way of altering my mind state, especially when it's that close to me where I had to take a step back and be like, look, everything I'm doing, I know it's like scenes related and I love this is my passion, but there's also this other aspect called life, right? <laughs> like other things that we can do. So I've been doing a better job of spending more time, just kind of having fun doing other stuff. So, uh, you know, the, the dog is one thing, um, exercising to keep healthy is another, I started surfing recently, um, doing archery again. Like I'm trying to just like expand the learning into different areas and to do different things, uh, to keep myself entertained, even though there are times that I want to be back on the machine, but I'm, I'm forcefully pulling myself out because there's more to life than just making chips. Right. <laughs> So yeah, just having fun, uh, living life, doing other things, trying to make it out here. And that's basically what I have envisioned for, for this upcoming year. Um, what about you, Winston? You know, I hate that I'm following you because it's, you've got massive life goals. You're working on your work life balance. I don't really, so shop wise, it's pretty boring. Um, but I have ambitions to turn the carbide 3d shop into something that's a little more pleasant for me to work on right now because right now it's like I have a small corner of the shop where all our machines are thrown next to me behind me is the machine shop and to my right is like uh, our shipping station fulfillment inventory that kind of thing um, and there's another corner that's like our, our CEO's little prototyping area and I'm sort of just thrown in there with not a whole lot of direction or uh, organization and because of the the way we do things, the kinds of things I need to shoot for video, and like the way like when we first get a machine like the Shape Oco Pro, it's the biggest one. So I've just got a bunch of like large unwieldy machines that I don't know how to organize in the shop. Uh, I don't really have enough room for like a proper workbench or like a tool cabinet. So like I can machine small things, but it's not a space where I really feel comfortable like working on a long term project. And I've been thinking about, like, my own garage versus the capabilities I have at work. And I want to be able to work 
not just in my own garage, but also feel comfortable like tackling a longer term project. Um, like I don't need like a whole like full wood shop at work, but it would be nice to have some space that's not just like right now every single horizontal space available is piled high with CNCs and machine components <laughs> and electronics and circuits and it's it's kind of a nightmare honestly i'm just like pushing the mess around whenever i need to shoot a video of something so my goal is to sort of put some some design intent behind that space like organize the machines um, put some more shelving there so um, we've got these rolling workbenches and instead of having just one machine on the top um, i want to be able to throw like a nomad underneath a different machine so like it's sort of like a little vertical two machine station uh, have the number of tables i need for cncs and open up some more space uh, for a nice clean table that i can assemble a project on um, and like just some prep work um, so that's the shop and that that's i don't know it's a not a very exciting goal but it's a goal that will improve my quality of life in terms of working there um and uh, i mean I that's a big one though like if you know at, at work uh they they probably could be more organized you know and at the shop uh i try to be more organized but there's like three of us now so i feel you like not having things in the right place or you know feeling comfortable in the space around me definitely hinders my efficiency if i have to look for something or if i don't feel like i can i have everything i need around me it can also deter me as well like from oh forget i won't i won't do it because i don't want to spend the time searching for something or, or doing this or doing that or whatever so it, it's important i think it's a big thing that most people overlook and it's it's just it's so easy to fall into a oh this this is good enough we'll just keep using it for a while until you just you reach a breaking point uh so recently we got a machining center and we set it up in a corner of the shop um but we didn't have all the ancillary equipment that you would want to keep with a VMC. Uh, like normally you have your own, like a little workstation there, a little tool cart or something. Um, we did not prepare for this machine acquisition. And so my boss rolled out this rickety little, like uh, it, it almost looks like a podium or like a pedestal, like a, a really small table, maybe like a one foot by two foot wide just enough for like a cafeteria serving tray on wheels basically um and like we just we put tools there and we piled them pretty in a pretty shoddy manner and it stayed that way for like six weeks until i was like all right this this has got to change because our machinist is taking over some of my area to load fixtures because he doesn't have enough space over by that machine and so i was just like all right, screw it. I'm cleaning up one of the larger rolling workbenches. We will put it there. I'll put all the, the tools and all the, the random crap, the end mills that are piled high on that little rickety table, put them in the drawers on this workbench. And it's, I don't know why we didn't do it sooner. Um, but there's just little things like that where you're like, I've got bigger problems. I, I can, we'll figure this out later. Um, but in the meantime, you're just miserable. And taking like this being the new year, it's like the perfect time to sort of focus on the little things that are annoying you and just trying to eradicate them. Don't let those little annoyances like just keep lingering. Address them now while you have a little bit of free time and then like just crush the rest of the year. 
Yeah, I, I, I totally get behind that. It, it's important. Oh, Eddie, did you ever find out who that person was that you were looking for, the Delcam guy? Within Tolerance, episode 79, I think it was uh, January 6th release, and it's Brian Danola of Autodesk. So that was like one of the best Autodesk-focused episodes I've heard uh, on any podcast for a long time because it hit all the stuff I care about, the products I use, and kind of it's more stuff than was on the roadmap that they talked about um, for Fusion. So it was, it was a little bit broader. It talked about you know the Delcam products and... Um, some of the higher end manufacturing stuff that, you know, pieces of it are showing up here and there in fusion and that's going to keep continuing. Um, but I think those other products are also growing, right? Um, they have Camplete, So they talk a little bit about what they're going to do with that acquisition and where, you know, what we can expect to start seeing showing up in fusion over time. So it was pretty good. So like one of the big things he says, Camplete's probably going to switch to a subscription model. So, uh, that makes it a little more, you know, um, I guess a four, it's a very expensive product, right? So normally you have to buy a seat. And I think it, I don't know what the price is. You probably do, Chris, but um, over 10,000. Yeah. So, um, and it, he talks a lot about like, I didn't know Complete, like they actually, they have their own post processors for everything, right? So all the code, they take the, the kind of intermediate code out of a product like Fusion. Um, they don't take like a machine specific code they, they take basically what's normal input to a post processor and then um they work with the the mtbs to develop the complete post processor for, say for dmg or whatever and uh mostly for five axis right that's where the, that was that simulation tool usually gets used um but then they can do like a really good job of simulation because they have complete control over the code generation um you know the downside is you you got to make sure they support your machine, right? Um, this, I guess those posts that you license could be expensive. But uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't have a need for something like that, but I'm looking forward to like seeing sim like full machine simulation get into Fusion someday. So I'm hoping that's like part of the like part of the solution to help Autodesk get there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's coming. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. And I'm sure it'll be a you know manufacturing extension required kind of thing. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But actually, you know, speaking of that, like I'm definitely re-upping. Um, I wasn't using it that heavily when I you know I paid for it when they had it on sale. But I'm talking about the manufacturing extension. I think I bought it year before last. I ended up renewing because it was kind of the same price. No, I bought it last year. That's right, I bought it last year. And then uh, I'm coming up on renewal in about probably summertime. Um, in the, like the first six months after I bought it, I was not using very many features of it. Um, I'd use Steep and Shallow every once in a while, but now like I'm using Rotary, I'm using Steep and Shallow pretty much on every job, um, Rotary on every four axis job, and um, just starting to play around with the in-process probing. Um, now that uh, Datron kind of has that in beta with Autodesk, or you know support for Datron probing. So yeah, it's kind of, um, I'm kind of becoming dependent on it, <laughs> uh, but it's a, yeah, it's a pretty good deal. Like Fusion plus that license is still like way cheaper than the next product you can buy that can do that same stuff, right? The next yeah, like, it's still way cheaper than most cam products, um, and it runs on Mac. <laughs> Which, <laughs> to me, that's worth a thousand dollars a year right there. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, no, when they had that big sale going, I I just bought three years. Or whatever, whatever the multi-year one was, because I I didn't want to worry about it. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, for, for somebody using fusion, like for commercial endeavors, um, you know, you can definitely with a little bit more spending, right. To activate some, you know, that module, I, I know they've, they've got the same thing going on on the additive side, which I, I don't use, but I don't pay for it. But, um, yeah, there's like, there's quite a lot of power hiding behind that extension. So, yeah. And a lot of it, you know, I would say you wouldn't be using it if you probably weren't in a commercial, like doing commercial work. A lot of it's not stuff you'd normally need for like a desktop hobby machine because they don't have probes and, you know, um, yeah, it's deep and maybe, um, like on the pocket and C pro that would probably work pretty good on there. I like where Autodesk is going. Um, I'm going to keep, you know, stick with them as long as I can. Um, hopefully I don't, the ITAR doesn't force me to switch to something else, <laughs> but, uh, and you know, supposedly Autodesk is working on ITAR, uh, like it's in there, um, where they, they used to have like the user suggestions and you could vote up, vote down. Like ITAR was pretty heavily voted up. There's no, com like they said they do it, but there's no commitment as to when. Um, and they even mentioned. I'm pretty sure that the ITAR compliance would negate their cloud servers. Well, that was, that was the thing. Like when we were at um, Portland, they talked about uh, a local, like local storage was coming, like local storage support was coming to Fusion. Like they mentioned it even then. Um, which is, that's the solution, right? You basically could delegate your project as um, local only, so it never gets uploaded to the cloud. And then, you, sh you know, you can still use cloud for stuff that's not ITAR compliant, but um, but you could probably, you know, you could set up like a whole section that would never get uploaded. Um, yeah, I don't know, like, if that would actually, like, if an auditor would have a problem with that, like, because it's still... You know, if the if the capability is there, someone could accidentally or intentionally like, oh, I'm just gonna turn it back onto cloud and then go steal the data <laughs> in China. You know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, if the capability, you know, they may have to actually have a different, you know, an ITAR compliant version that doesn't have the cloud code in it. I don't know, but it'd be interesting to see where they go with that. Yeah, that'd be. I'm sure if they did, it'd be a huge boost in getting them to bigger uh, like be more shops. be more yeah like the stand like fighting the standard of master cam and stuff yeah it, it'd be a good punch for them yeah because i mean to, in general i love the fact that it's cloud-based like i get a lot of benefit out of that um, especially when i'm collaborating with clients or other other people you know other subcontractors who are kind of sharing work um that collaboration's huge right it really speeds things up because it's already up on the cloud right it's easy for them to see like we can actually see edits made in real time by the other person. So, uh, on a model. Yeah. I love that. I, I love it too. Every time I talk to people about it, it's like, I'm the only one that loves it. Everyone hates it. They hate the fact that that's a cloud. I'm like, you just, you just have to change the way you, you think about doing certain things, right? It's just a different way of doing things. So yeah. Well, every time the cloud, like the API goes down, then I feel different. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Fusion, yeah. Where do they guys? Fusion is degraded, like uh, <laughs> it's demented. <laughs> but yeah, but, yeah. For the most part, it actually works pretty good. Works pretty well. Oh, one other thing I wanted to just mention real quickly was that um, I'm taking that monthly Mark Rober class, and uh, it's pretty cool to see inside his brain and stuff. We could talk about it later, but uh, it's been interesting. Design focus class it's, or? It's, a, it's like a design mechanical and electrical engineering class where we 
he goes over how he develops ideas the way the same way he does his videos and the same way that he uses in NASA and and wherever else Apple. Um, how he comes up with an idea, how he solves the problems, how he designs based off of that, and then actually going through the process of making these prototypes and making these projects. And so um, I'm already super behind because their schedule is like uncanny. I don't even know what human being, unless you're like an actual student with no job, be able to fill that because they have like a class coming out and you have to watch videos, do the thing and design a prototype in like four days. I'm like, dude, this is like, this is intense, but um it's you own it for life so i can always go back there my my thought was like i would save this and share it with my nephew or nieces when they get a little bit older um but also just uh i wanted to peek into his brain right how he develops ideas and so so that's been it's been worth worth the money for that alone just curious is he uh using fusion and eagle for the or is it kind of product agnostic or software agnostic class it's software agnostic but i believe he uses fusion yeah that's about it um Glad everyone's healthy and glad everyone's still kicking and uh, looking forward to, looking forward to a better year. Good talking to you guys, and uh, I'll say good night. All right. Thanks for the chat, guys. Have a good one. You too. Catch you later.